0: Welcome to now Appalachian hosted by author and Appalachian resident Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works and now Appalachian. And hello, friends, and we welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, broadcast and heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as the Appalachian region and its 205,000 square miles covering 13 states and being the home to 25 million residents is profiled on this program and we're profiling the authors and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region and how those influences from Appalachia influence and impact their works. I'm Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us today. We have a return author with us. He was with us a couple of years ago and he's back again with his brand new thriller novel it's called Kill All Your Darlings and our guest today is author David Bell and he is a USA today best-selling and award-winning author of eight novels from Berkeley and Penguin including Somebody's Daughter Bring Her Home Since She Went Away Somebody I Used to Know The Forgotten Girl Never Come Back The Hiding Place Cemetery Girl and his most recent prior to this book The Request He's an associate professor of English at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green Kentucky and he can be reached anytime through his website, DavidBellNovels.com, and he is back with a fantastic new book that you're going to want to put on your to-be-read pile, and if you are looking for a book to take with you on a road trip uh, for the summer or early fall, this is one you need to add to your list because it's fantastic, and I can't wait to talk to David about it. So David, welcome back to Now Appalachia. Great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. That was such a great
1: introduction. I don't I don't have to say anything. You covered it all. <laughs> you you made me sound so good.
0: Well, 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 you're welcome, and and you are good, and you are back with another fantastic book, uh, "Kill All Your Darlings." And I wanted to ask you before we get into the book about one of the things I love about all of your stories is you really kind of open up each novel and kind of drop the reader in the middle of a situation and we kind of have to figure our way out through that in terms of what's going on, who are these characters, what's happening, what are they experiencing? And I just wondered as a, as a thriller writer, why you like that technique so well because you use it a lot in your books and you do it so well. I think it's because th- there's a lot of
1: pressure if you write thrillers to grab the reader right away. I mean, I think that's that's an expectation is that if someone is reading a 900-page literary novel or even a 900-page novel of any kind, there's this expectation of, well, it might take a little bit of time to get going and like a big fantasy novel where it's like, well, there's some world building. We have to explain the politics and the religion and the this and the magic and all that. Um, but But for a thriller that's 350 pages or something like that, I think there's a lot of pressure to grab the reader right away. Um, I'm conscious of the fact, and I'm not simply saying this about other people, I'm saying it about myself as well, that we expect to be grabbed. I mean, we've all had the experience of sitting there channel surfing and something comes on, and if it doesn't interest us in seven seconds, we're flipping to the next channel, right? And, and on and on. So I think there are a lot of demands on people's attention from the internet and from Netflix and streaming and everything. So I think books have to compete. So I'm trying to grab the reader right away so they don't go and flip and go binge watch something else or pick up somebody else's book because there are tons and tons of good books being published. So they might just jump over to the next book Uh, on their Kindle or on their nightstand if I don't grab them right away.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Well, at the beginning of this book, we meet a couple of characters right off the bat. Connor Nye, who is an English professor at a fictional Kentucky College, Kentucky Commonwealth University, and he has received an unannounced and unexpected visit by Madeline O'Brien, who is a former student of his. So uh, before we talk about what she's doing there now, what kind of relationship did Connor and Madeline have Uh, prior to her return, uh, this surprise visit that she makes for, on him and to him?
1: Well, they were teacher students. She was an undergraduate student of his, and they, he had a great deal of admiration for her because she was a really talented student, and she liked him because he was a down-to-earth supportive professor, so they really had a good professor-student relationship, Um, and since I've taught creative writing for a while at at universities, students like Madeline show up sometimes. It's rare, um, but sometimes a student shows up who's really talented. And as a professor, sometimes I feel like I think this student has more talent and wisdom about writing than I have. Uh, And it's a strange experience to encounter someone like that Who's so young? Who's 20, 21 years old, and they've already they're already writing really sophisticated stories. So that has been a little unnerving for Connor to come face to face with such a talented student. Um, and and I think sometimes when we encounter really talented students as teachers, sometimes we're not sure what to do with them because students who need help in some ways that's more obvious. You say like, oh, okay, they need to learn, they need to learn how to work on their characters or they need to know, you know, you can do that. Someone who's farther along, and, and I've experienced this working with graduate students, sometimes when someone's farther along, I think it's easy to feel as though I'm not sure what I can really do for this person who seems really talented and smart already. And where, what do I do with them? So that's been the nature of their relationship uh, up until things start in the book.
0: So we learn that Madeline has been gone for two years and she is presumed dead during that time. And when she meets Connor and, and he comes in and there she is uh, standing sort of kind of in his living room holding this book in her hand, uh, it's Connor's latest book because he, he's a, a creative writer and a novelist at uh, Commonwealth University. Uh, it's a crime thriller. Uh, But there's a problem uh, with that particular book. What is that problem? And what is it that Madeline wants him to do about it?
1: Yeah, there's a big problem. Connor has just published this novel and it's the day the book has come out and he's come home from his launch event at the library, which should be the greatest moment of his life. And Madeline's there with the book. And the problem is, is that Madeline really wrote the book. Before she disappeared and was presumed to be dead, this was her honors thesis that she turned in. And Connor was the only person who had a copy of the book before Madeline disappeared. He's trying to get tenure. He thinks Madeline's dead, so he passes the book off as his own. Now Madeline has shown up and said, hey, I see this book you published looks really familiar. Um, And she says, if you don't give me all the money from the book, I will expose you to the world, you'll lose your job, you'll lose tenure, you'll be embarrassed publicly. Um, Madeline makes the assumption that a lot of people make in the world that if you publish a book, you must automatically have vast amounts of wealth just sitting around your house that you can hand out to people. Um, So she wants the money from Connor, uh, or she's going to expose him for the fraud that he is.
0: And we'll come back to that, uh, that, that kind of uh, dual decision or that sort of hard, rock in a hard place area that, that Connor occupies. But one of the things I really found myself thinking about as I was reading the story and following Connor's story, I, I at times was uh, wanting him to get his just desserts. But at the same time, I was really feeling sympathetic towards him because uh, he has really struggled to produce any written work because his wife and son, I believe, were killed uh, uh, or or have died, uh, previously. And so that, that emotional, uh, struggle that he's having and the fact that those two characters are no longer in his life are really weighing on him and I was wanted to ask you about kind of creating him and humanizing him in that way because I felt like there were times when I thought yes I hope this I hope he gets caught and I hope he gets what's happened well what he's got coming to him but then I thought well hey you know this guy did lose uh, a child and his wife and so can you talk about about creating Connor with kind of that 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 sympathetic or soft edge or Uh, that duality within his character to kind of make us sometimes root for him, but at sometimes uh, also be disgusted by what he's doing.
1: Yeah, Connor is like all of us. He has, he's a good person. I think fundamentally, people should feel like he's a good person. He's a good teacher. He cares about his students. He loved his family, all that kind of stuff. He's nice to his dog. All those things are good things for him. He's made this huge mistake, which is which is in many ways, one of the worst mistakes you can make. One of the worst things you can do if you're a writer and if you're a writing professor is to steal someone else's work, is to plagiarize and pass it off as your own. Now he thought no one was ever gonna catch him because he thought Madeline was dead and he was desperate to keep his job because he's a college professor. And we all know there's the whole publish or perish idea in college that if you don't produce something, It's not just that you don't get tenure, it's that you get fired. You don't have your job anymore. Connor thinks about the fact that he's a middle-aged guy and he's really not equipped to do anything else with his life besides be a college professor. So if he loses his job, he loses everything. Um, So I hope the reader sees that about him, that there are things that they're gonna feel empathy for him, the losses he's experienced, his loneliness, his grief his desperation to keep his job. Um, I think they're gonna see the flaws in him that he did do this horrible thing, um, that he is slow to come clean about it in the book. Um, I hope by the end of the book, they see a more complete picture of Connor or a more complete picture as the story goes along. Um, But I think books are interesting when characters are complex, they're not all good, they're not all bad, we understand. Um, even all of us have made stupid mistakes, no matter how smart we think we are, um, we've, we've done dumb things and we've made mistakes and hurt people. Um, so Connor is no different than the rest of us in that regard.
0: Let me ask you to clarify one term for our audience who may not be familiar with academia and how that works. You've mentioned tenure a couple of times. What, what is tenure, first of all, and why is that so important to you know real college faculty, but also uh, Connor and I?
1: Well, tenure is what you get after, usually after you've been um, on the tenure track for six years at a university. And it essentially means you can't get fired. I mean, it's there to give you... Uh, academic freedom and protection from um, being fired because you're doing some research into something that might be controversial or you're writing something that might be controversial. And it just means you don't have to prove yourself every year to keep coming back that, that you've been, you've been admitted and you go on. It's kind of like becoming a, you know, making a partner in a law firm or something like that, you know, that you have that kind of security that you can do whatever work you want to do without, the threat of losing your job immediately. And it's important to Connor because um, like I said, if you don't get tenure, you lose your job. It would be very difficult for someone like Connor who is about 40 years old. He's in the middle of his career. If he suddenly doesn't get tenure at one university, he has to go to try to find a job at another university. And the natural question will be, well, why didn't you get tenure at the university you were already Uh, employed by, right? So he's kind of stuck in that place where if he doesn't get this job, if he doesn't get tenure at this job, he's not going to be able to do anything else. And Connor is not doing well overall, so he's probably not likely to be the best candidate to go out and get a job somewhere else.
0: And one of the key things I loved about the book as we get back into it is What Madeline has put in her story, unbeknownst to Connor at the very beginning, when he was publishing it and going through that whole process of publication and and here's the new book, is that some of the details Madeline wrote about are connected to a murder uh, that happened uh, a few years prior. And I love what you do as, as Connor realizes that that's the case is he really starts to get squeezed on both sides. He's got the, the faculty and the administration at the university kind of bearing down on him on one side. He's got the police who are starting to show up and question him uh, about what he knows and about his connections and everything to the details and the murder on the other side. And so how does he handle that, given that, as you mentioned, he's kind of coming in a, in a fragile emotional state and mental state anyway at the beginning of the story. Now he's getting kind of squeezed both professionally and personally. How does he handle all of that?
1: Well, we've all seen this in in the actual world, um, usually with politicians. Uh, what we know is that the cover up is always worse than the crime. We always see politicians or someone get caught in a scandal, and months and months go by where they're saying, "I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it." And then eventually they have to say, "Well, I did it." And we always look at them and think, "Well, if you just admitted it months ago." You probably would have had less fewer consequences than um, if you if you tried to stonewall and, and um, deny. Um, but it's human nature to deny when we get caught. It's human nature to think, I can somehow work this out. I can somehow make this right on my own. I can somehow spin things so that, Um, I can put a different light on what I did. And that's what Connor does. He wants to hang on to his job. He doesn't wanna be publicly embarrassed about having stolen this book. Um, he, He doesn't have the money, Madeline's asking him for money. He does not have the money to give her because he did not get paid a ton of money for the book. And his life has gone so poorly that he doesn't have that much money anyway um so you're right he is being squeezed he is not at least initially making the right decisions about how to get out of that hole there's the old adage that if you want to get out of a hole stop digging right Connor continues to dig for a while um, before he figures out a way to try to get out of the hole
0: we're speaking with David Bell here on Now Appalachia. He is the USA Today best-selling and award-winning author of eight novels, and his latest book is called Kill All Your Darlings. We'll come back to the book in just a minute, because plenty of good, more good stuff to talk about there. But I, I wanted to ask you, David, you're also the, uh, the associate professor of English and director of the MFA and creative writing program uh, at Western Kentucky University. And I was reading a story the other day, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, where Uh, because of COVID in the last year, that college applications, at least those that have been submitted, are at an all-time high. And I would imagine that some of those, because everybody was home and had plenty of time to think about going to school or going to graduate school or or back to school for whatever reason, I imagine uh, a significant stack of those applications were for MFA programs. So if we have someone in our audience that maybe is thinking about going to an MFA program or applying to an MFA program, be it Western Kentucky University or somewhere else, what are some things that that you think they should be asking themselves in terms of um, is it a right decision? Because we've seen plenty of writers with MFAs do well. We've seen writers without MFAs do well. And some people always ask themselves, and I did this when I went through mine, you know, is it going to be worth it? Will it benefit me? So what are some things that if folks are listening and thinking about an MFA, they should they should be asking themselves or, or weighing in their minds as they think about applying to schools?
1: Yeah, I think you're right to say it's not something that everybody has to do. I think sometimes young writers think they have to go get a graduate degree in writing in order to get anywhere. And that's not true. Lots of really successful writers did not go to graduate school or they maybe didn't even study English uh, in school. They studied something else. Um, And studying something else can bring a different angle to your writing that maybe studying English wouldn't bring. So I, I don't, it's, they have to ask themselves if they want to do it. I think they should want to do it. I think there are two reasons to get a graduate degree in writing. One is if you want to be a college professor and teach creative writing someday, then you pretty much have to have a graduate degree. So if you wanna be a college professor, uh, then yeah, you should go get a graduate degree somewhere. You pretty much have to do that. The other reason I think to do it is if you want the time, if if you can get into an MFA program that gives you support and it's not ever gonna be a lot of support, but if you can get a little bit of support, meaning that they pay your tuition and you get a little bit of money to live on and you just want that time where you don't have the pressure of having to have a day job from nine to five or, or, or whatever, or you're out in the world. I mean, I remember I took time off between my undergraduate degree and my master's degree, and it felt like there weren't any other writers in the world. I felt like I was alone and that there weren't other writers out there I was trying to write stories, but no one else was writing stories, or I didn't know anybody who was a writer. Um, I did take a couple of community classes in that time, and that helped, because then you meet other writers and people read your work. But I think going to a graduate program in creative writing can do that, where all of a sudden you're around your people, you're around other people who are serious about writing and they they have the same dreams and aspirations that you do. Um, and they understand the struggles that you're going through. And so I think you can find a community of writers anywhere. You don't have to go to graduate school to do that. But I think graduate school can provide someone with a community of writers. Um, and then it's also an opportunity to get to know the faculty who, who will be published writers and visiting writers who are published writers. And, and, and I think it can help a writer feel like they're less alone, and that they're just, they're not just out there on an island and sending stories off into the void, and no one may ever read them. Um, I, I think that's a big thing that an MFA program can do.
0: Excellent. Very, very well said. I know getting my MFA in creative writing was one of the best things I ever did for myself. And I was working full time and, and did a low residency option and, and did residencies in the summer and over Christmas break. But, but that community of writers and that time to write where I could just go somewhere and shut out the rest of my life, you know, my work life and family life and just write. Um, was really valuable. So let me ask you, um, as a thriller writer, and you've got now uh, eight, eight or nine books, and I know more coming uh, on the way, what do you find is the hardest part about writing a thriller? Because I think a lot of people because who uh, read thrillers and see these kinds of programs on TV and in movies think, oh, that's got to be simple to write. But I know it's mm-hmm. a lot harder than that. So having done so many novels now and ha- being on the USA Today bestseller list, still, I have to imagine there's challenging parts about writing thrillers. What do you think is one of the most challenging parts for you about writing a thriller?
1: I think the hard, there are a lot of hard things, but the hard thing is that there are a lot of thrillers in the world. There are a lot of stories in the world. Um, We were talking, I think, before we came on here about during the pandemic, people were at home, they were streaming stories, and now There are more stories than ever on television because there are so many streaming services. And and there are tons of books everywhere. I mean, if you go into the grocery store or Target or Walmart, there are books everywhere. Um, And so coming up with an original idea is always, I mean, that's always been the challenge, right? It's always been the challenge, whether you're writing in a genre, you're writing something else. Is coming up with an original idea do you have something slightly different to say because readers and viewers have seen and read so many stories um, they're smart and sophisticated they've seen the tricks they've seen like oh this is an unreliable narrator or oh you know this is you know they're making me think this is the killer but this is the killer and they've seen all these things happen so it's difficult for any writer to come up with an idea that is has not been done before, um, is a new take on something, um, but is not. The, the other thing is you don't want to just be doing a new take for the sake of doing a new take. You It, it still has to be a story that is organic and feels real and feels natural. Um, so I think those are the challenges, not just for thriller writers, but for any writer, because they're... We've all seen and consumed so many stories. Uh, It would be a lot easier to be back, you know, like Homer was probably like, you know, (laughs) once a year he passed through a village and they were like, wow, Homer, we've been waiting for the rest of the story for a year. Uh, Now, you know, we're competing against, he didn't have to compete against Netflix and all that stuff. So we have it much harder than Homer had it.
0: We're speaking with David Bell on Now Appalachia, talking to him about his career as a writer, his work as a professor, but his sensational new novel, Kill All Your Darlings. And I wanted to ask you about where, before we get back to, to the book, where, where you came up with that title, Kill All Your Darlings, because I, I love that title. And it, I've thought about that title a lot you know, as I was reading your book and as I was researching for the interview and thinking about things we could talk about, I, that, that title kept sticking out in my mind. Where, where did you get the idea for that title?
1: Well, the so when I'm writing a book, I there's always a I always just have a placeholder title. Um, sometimes it's just a nonsense title. Um, in in the case of this book, it was I was thinking of it as the manuscript um, because the book is about a stolen manuscript, whatever. So I was just thinking of it that way. Um, when the book was finished and I was turning it into my editor, um, then immediately there's always this. No, like, well, the manuscript—that's kind of a boring title, right? You know, whatever. So, come up with a better title. So, because this is a book about a creative writing professor and and murders on a college campus, that tied that phrase, um, which is attributed to Faulkner, um, came to me. I think anyone who's taken a creative writing class, or at least when I was taking creative writing classes, people always talked about that phrase. In writing, you have to kill all your darlings. That when you write. You might write this beautiful, wonderful scene or chapter or whatever. Inevitably, when your editor or your writing group or whatever reads that book or story, that's the scene they go to and say, you know, you really need to cut this part of the story. And it's the most painful thing in the world because as the writer, we think, no, that's the most beautiful part, but that might be why it has to go. And that's what Faulkner is talking about in that quote, is you have to take out the thing that you think is most precious and beautiful in your writing. And it can feel as a writer like we're cutting off one digit of our pinky finger every time we do that. Um, And then there's a second, obviously, there's a second meaning to it in my book, which is that, spoiler alert, it's a thriller. Um, Some (laughs) people end up dead in the book. Um, and so it works on both those levels. It's about the creative writing part of the book. It's also about the fact that some people have been killed in this town. Um, and so I thought it, 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 was, it was the perfect title for the book, I think.
0: I loved it. Absolutely loved the title. And hearing that explanation is is perfect. And I can see exactly why you chose that as well, given what happens in the book. And speaking of one of those darlings that doesn't make it to the end of the book, we talked about Madeline O'Brien earlier. Uh, We find out later in the book, we won't give too much away about how and why, but, but she is, she is killed and I love where you put her body and I'll have you kind of explain the significance of that. You have her body found or discovered or, 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 buried rather, um, in a cemetery, which, you know, for mystery thriller readers, they may think, well, that's not so unique, but this cemetery is, has an important connection to the story and to Connor. Why is that cemetery where Madeline is found, uh, important to Connor and to really thematically what's going on in the story?
1: Yeah. Connor, the cemetery is where Connor's wife and son are buried. And so in the grip of his grief, um, he frequently wanders over to the cemetery late at night to sit by his family's graves, um, and so and it's actually based on something right down the street from me. Here uh, is Fairview Cemetery. Um, which is the only reason I bought this house is because it's two blocks from the cemetery. But no, there a cemetery right down, if you're ever in Bowling Green, there's Fairview Cemetery, which is the giant cemetery where Duncan Hines is buried. Um, so the next time you have a delicious brownie, think about Duncan Hines, <laughs> moldering in his grave down the road. Um, but, but at the cemetery down the road here, um, obviously there's a fence around the cemetery, but um, a tree has grown up through the fence and has, Opened up the fence. And so, even when the cemetery is closed, uh, you can slip into the cemetery and still walk around and do whatever. Um, so, it, I took that, that even though Connor goes to the cemetery late at night when it's locked and you're not supposed to be in there, he's found this little way to sneak into the cemetery where a tree has grown through the fence. Um, and that's where he goes and um, to, to think about his family when he can't sleep, when he's restless and walking at night, um, he goes there. And so it's based on the cemetery right down the street from me.
0: Excellent. Very good. And what, what last question I had for you is um, about the point of views, the multiple point of views that are in the book, which, which I love because I felt like we had a chance to get inside different characters' heads as the mystery is unfolding. But I want to ask you about putting that together. Is, is that something as you were drafting it, did you just go in order and, and change those uh, points of view as you were drafting? Or did you sit down and write all of one character's point of view first and then go back and do another characters and kind of meld those together. How did you do that and what was that challenging to do? You know I've heard of writers
1: who do that who write one character's entire point of view and then the other character's entire point of view. Um, I couldn't do that. I think in a I must think in a much more linear fashion that I have to have it I have to have it go in the order it's supposed to go. Um, So I did make, I mean, I made an outline for the whole book, and then I made a second summary chart, whatever you want to call it, of the order of the points of view and the times that they were narrating, because some of the points of view are from two years ago, one year ago, five years ago, um, and then in the present. So I did make a chart to keep all that straight. I, I don't know that I actually stuck to my chart, but it I felt better once I had plotted the direction that they were gonna go um, so that I could, I, I at least had some sense that I could make, I could make sense of what was going on. Um, and it was tough, it, it was, I've never written a book or I've never published a book at least where the, that, where the time was like this, where we're, we're going back and forth from the present to the past in different years. And so that was the biggest challenge. And before I wrote the book, I really was worried. I thought this is the way I want to tell the story. And I was really worried. What if I start doing this and I can't do it and it's a disaster. Um, So I think it turned out all right. I think it's a non disaster. But that was the big anxiety for me was I'm I'm trying to tell the story in a way that I've never told a story before. Is that going to work? Am I going to be able to pull it off? So that was a concern.
0: In our final moments with you today, David, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about Kill All Your Darlings or your other books, um, how can they do that if they want to to do that or if they want to learn more about Western Kentucky University's MFA program, where can they get information uh, about that? So how can they reach you and the MFA program and then where can you get copies of Kill All Your Darlings?
1: Yeah, you can find me. I have a website, davidbellnovels.com. I'm on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram—it's all David Bell novels. So you can find out where I'm doing events, when books are going on sale, things like that. If anybody has questions about WKU, you can always write to me there uh, and ask through my website or whatever. I'm happy to talk about it. And the book is going to be available a lot of places. It'll be in Target. Uh, it will be in Walmart. It will be in Barnes and Noble. It will be available online uh, from your favorite indie store, bookshop.org. Uh, I'm doing events. There will be some bookstores that will have signed copies, Joseph Beth in Cincinnati, Parnassus, of course, Poison Pen in Arizona, um, and ultimately Bowling Green, Barnes and Noble. So you should be able to find a copy of the book somewhere. And if you want a signed copy, you can always check out my website. It'll tell you how you can get a signed one.
0: Fantastic. And, and David, I think I, I can't add apparently. So the Kill All Your Darlings is your 10th book or 11th book? I misspoke earlier and couldn't count, said it was your ninth. Is, uh, is this your 10th well, or Well, you
1: know, you're a writer, so you're probably not that good at math. That's probably- <laughs> I'm <what> not. <laughs> it's, it's the 11th book with Berkeley. It's my 11th. I did two books with a small press before I went to Berkeley. So it's my 13th overall, uh, 11th one with Berkeley. Lucky okay. 13 overall, mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Okay, very good. I wanted to get that right. As, as we were talking, and I was looking at your list of books, I thought, boy, I totally blew the uh, book count on that. So, that's Well, that's you. okay,
1: because sometimes I have to stop and try, you know, I, I, I used to wonder, like, you would hear authors, and they'd be, they wouldn't be able to remember, like, how many books they'd written, or you'd ask them something about a book, and they would say, oh, I don't remember that from my book. And I would think, oh, come on, what's wrong with you? Now that's me. I can't remember anything even about my own writing career. So I I need a fact checker following me around too.
0: Fantastic, and thank you for being forgiving for, of me yeah. on my bad math, but we've been talking That's with right. uh, the amazing writer, David Bell, his 11th book with, uh, he has 13 books overall, he's got 11 now with Berkeley and Penguin, and his latest is fantastic, it's called Kill All Your Darlings, it's a thriller set at the fictitional Kentucky Commonwealth University in which a former student visits her former professor with a uh, goals of getting money for payment from a book that he published that she wrote it is a terrific story every chapter is purposeful and quick you'll turn the pages Uh, once you get started. It's fantastic. You've got some characters that you're going to fall in love with, some you're going to want to keep an eye on. David, it's just amazing. And I hope that uh, folks looking for something to add to their uh, summer and fall to be reading or to be read piles will consider your book. It's terrific. Congratulations on it. Uh, And as you get that next one done with Penguin, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it. So thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate all your kind words and I appreciate being on. Thank you.
0: Glad to have you with us. And we want to take a few moments as we wrap up this episode of Now Appalachia to first give a shout out to the executive producer of our program and the executive producer of all the programs you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the support and assistance, both technical and otherwise, that Pam provides for us. We couldn't do it without her, so thanks so much, Pam. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. In the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global
1: Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.